It's a pleasure to welcome you to the bookstore this evening as we welcome historian Andrew Del Banco to Harrisburg for a special presentation on his new book, The War Before the War, Fugitive Slaves and the Struggle for America's Soul from the Revolution to the Civil War. Before we begin, some quick housekeeping. Our event series for the fall is coming to a close in the next couple weeks as we prepare for the holiday season. So I have two more events that I'm excited to tell you about. Tomorrow at four, we're hosting renowned classicists Emily Wilson and Madeline Miller. Wilson is the first female translator in English of the Odyssey, and Miller is the number one New York Times bestselling novelist of Circe. Uh, again, that's tomorrow at four. And next Saturday at five, we have The Guardian's Chris McGreal visiting the scholar to discuss his new book detailing the national opioid epidemic, American Overdose, the opioid tragedy in three acts. He'll be joined by WITF's health reporter, Brett Schulstis, who will connect Chris's national reporting uh, to Harrisburg and the opioid epidemic in Pennsylvania. We hope to see you at both events. Now on to tonight's main event. Andrew Del Banco is the Alexander Hamilton Professor of American Studies at Columbia University, author of many notable books. He was recently appointed president of the Teagle Foundation, which supports liberal education for college students of all backgrounds. Winner of the Great Teacher Award from the Society of Columbia Graduates, he is an elected member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and the American Philosophical Society. In 2001, Andrew Dobanco was named by Time as America's best social critic, and in 2012, President Barack Obama present, presented him with the National Humanities Medal. In The War Before the War, Dobanco provides a provocative, sweeping study of America's original sin, slavery, in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Henry Louis Gates calls Dobanco one of our generation's most gifted scholars, and Charles Johnson succinctly says that this is a work every American needs to read. Without further ado, please join me and give me a warm Harrisburg welcome to Andrew Delmanco. Thank you very much, Alex, and uh, thank you all for coming out on this suddenly wintry night, which caught me a little bit by surprise, but maybe you're used to it. Uh, and I want to say the um, this is my first visit to Midtown Scholar Bookstore, but uh, the reputation preceded it, or this experience for me, and I can see why it has the reputation it has. It's a great place, and uh, I hope you're all supportive of it, because independent bookstores in this country need all the support that they can get. Um, so I'm going to talk, uh, I don't know, maybe 20 minutes or so, a little give or take, and then we can have some back and forth uh, as long as Alex uh, lets, us, lets us do that. Um, the topic tonight uh, is one that, that I spent a long time trying to figure out how to talk about responsibly, namely slavery. Uh, I have a particular story to tell about a, what I think is an important aspect of the American experience with, with slavery. But before I try to convey to you uh, what that story is, I, I think one needs to acknowledge that there are certain words that we use to talk about race relations in our country, uh, racism, for example, discrimination, white supremacy, and above all, at the root of it all, the term slavery. And my sense is that although we have to use those words and they're important, that they they have the effect of obscuring the experience that we're talking about as much as revealing it. They have a certain abst abstract quality. And to get behind those words to anything like real contact with the experience itself is a tremendous challenge. And in fact, I think it's a challenge that right up front, everybody ought to admit we can't meet the challenge. That is that there are certain experiences in life like life-threatening illness or serving in combat that nobody who hasn't experienced it can possibly understand. So that's a kind of disclaimer that I want to put out there to begin with, even though there is a way in which through this book I tried to get to a little bit of a better understanding of the phenomenon. In the course of writing it, I learned a lot. Uh, I read and therefore listened to the voices of quite a number of former slaves, that is, slaves who managed by 
personal courage and effort against the odds to escape from slavery. And uh, they're the ones that probably have the most to tell us about the experience. One of them, William Wells Brown, who is a very gifted writer and became a novelist as well as a memoirist, put it this way when he was speaking to a, uh, an anti-slavery society in New England in the late 1840s. He said, if I were to speak to you of slavery, I would whisper. Slavery cannot be represented. Slavery can never be represented, which is, I think, a good way of, a more succinct way and with a lot more authority than I can muster of saying what I just tried to say. Nevertheless, there have been efforts to sum up what slavery means, and one of my, I don't know, favorite is the right word, but one of the, one of the efforts that I think comes closest to achieving the goal is by none other than Ben Franklin. I thought he might be an appropriate person to start with since he's a Pennsylvanian and one of the founders of the Pennsylvania Abolition Society. He had a complex relationship to slavery just as all the founding fathers did. I mean, when he was a young newspaper man in Philadelphia, he accepted advertisements for the sale of slaves in his newspaper, owned a couple of slaves in his own lifetime, emancipated the last one uh, posthumously, but I do think, uh, and, and you know, I just say, want to say parenthetically, this is not by way of excuse. There's no way to exculpate people from the original sin of slavery, as Alex re referred to it. But one does need to recognize that in the late 18th century, when the founding fathers constructed the new, this new republic, slavery was essentially a universal phenomenon. I'm not sure that one could have identified any society in history that did not have some form of slavery. Often it took the form in the ancient world, as I'm sure many of you know, it took the form of if, if you were on the losing side of a war, you paid the price of being enslaved by the victor. Race-based slavery was a more modern invention. But Ben Franklin was born into a world where slavery was the norm rather than something exceptional and remarkable. And that's one of the reasons why the story of how uh, the abolition societies came into being and, and, and struggled to bring slavery to an end is a dramatic one because they were really saying the world needs to be fundamentally different from the way it has always been. Anyway, here is Franklin in 1770 writing uh, an explanation of what a slave is. Uh, and you have to assume that when somebody wants to explain something this fundamental, it's because he believes that people need to understand it better than they do. A slave, he writes, is a human creature stolen, taken by force, or bought of another or of himself with money. He's a wonderfully clear writer and who being so taken or bought is compelled to serve the taker or purchaser during pleasure or during life. He may be sold again or let for hire by his master to another and is then obliged to serve that other. He is one who is bound to, bound to obey not only the commands of his master but also the commands of the lowest servant of that master when set over him who must come when he is called go when he is bid, and stay when he is ordered, though to the farthest part of the world, and in the most unwholesome climate, who must wear such clothes as his master thinks fit to give him and no other, and must be content with such food or subsistence as his master thinks fit to order for him, or with such small allowance in money as shall be given him in lieu of victuals or clothing, who must never absent himself from his master's service without leave, who is subject to severe punishments for small offenses, to enormous whippings and even death for absconding from his service or for disobedience to orders. Sums it up pretty well, though again, it doesn't begin to scratch the surface of the reality and also obscures the reality that there were many forms of slavery in colonial and early 19th century America. Plantation slavery, which grew 
more and more in the course of the 19th century and, and something that I find a lot of people in the general public don't realize is that the 19th century saw a massive relocation of slaves from the upper south to the lower south as the, as the cotton industry grew more and more and the need for labor uh, uh, overwhelmed the, um, what they called the natural increase of slaves in the, in the cotton south. So it, the experience of being a slave in, say, Louisiana or southern Georgia was doubtless a different thing from being a slave in Baltimore where you might be hired out and even possibly allowed to keep a portion of your wages and in some cases allowed to purchase your own freedom. So there was a, a big spectrum of experience, but what I like about that uh, Franklin passage is that it gets to the heart of the matter, something that another great fugitive from slavery, Frederick Douglass, um, emphasized that when he spoke to audiences, largely white audiences in New England and in Old England where he spent some time, he would say, look, I, I know what you really want to hear about is the paraphernalia of slavery, the physical abuse entailed in slavery. But he said, but I, but I want to talk to you about the psychological cost of slavery, what it means to wake up every morning and know that you are owned by another human being and that your children will be owned by another human being. And so as this is a multi-dimensional topic, which again, I don't want to pretend uh, I got to the bottom of. Now, to get to the story that I try to tell in this book, uh, the Constitution of the United States in which Franklin had a significant hand, uh, never uses the word slave. The word slave doesn't appear in the Constitution until the 13th Amendment was passed after the Civil War, the amendment that was designed to destroy slavery. That's the first time the word itself appears there. But there are at least three places in the Constitution that are explicitly uh, referring to slavery, and I'm sure many of you know what they are. The first is the notorious three-fifths clause, which was a compromise between the northern colonies and the southern colonies, whereby the, the slave-based colonies, the slave states, as they were about to become, could count three-fifths of all other persons, to use the language in the Constitution, for the purpose of apportioning representatives. And this is a source of a lot of misunderstanding because it's a grotesque notion that some people count for only three-fifths of a person. But in, in fact, it's an ironic fact, the Southern delegates to the convention wanted to count slaves as full persons for the purposes of apportionment, right? Because then they would have gotten more representatives in Congress and more political power thereby. It was the Northerners who wanted not to count slaves in the apportionment or to count them as a half a person or a, a third of a person. So that's, I just mentioned that because it's, it's commonly misunderstood, but they settled on three-fifths for the purposes of apportionment. Second place in the Constitution where slavery is referred to without being named is in a clause that states that Congress shall make no laws to regulate the importation of such persons as the states may wish to import sooner than another 20 years. In other words, in 1787, they made another deal. It was a, this was a deal-making convention. Uh, the deep southern states, like South Carolina in particular, uh, were upset at the idea that this new federal government would have any authority to pre prevent them from importing as many fresh, unfree laborers as they should need in the future. Uh, other states, including some southern states that were worried about having a, a, a black population that was getting too large for their taste, uh, were okay with terminating the slave trade right then and there in 1787 and 1788. So they made an agreement that, look, Congress will have no authority to do this for another 20 years, but in 20 years they can revisit the, the, the question. This too is complicated subject. The great African-American uh, historian and, 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 and philosopher and sociologist W.E.B. Du Bois, who wrote a book about the suppression of the African slave trade, a pioneering book, 
argued that a lot of, if a lot, if not all, the delegates to the Constitutional Convention believed that by putting that clause into the Constitution that would schedule the end of the slave trade, they were taking the first step toward the destruction of slavery. It's hard to know if that's right or not, but I have a lot of respect for Du Bois's judgment. And I think we do probably want to remember that when they signed that document, they really did not anticipate, just as we cannot anticipate what will happen five years, 10 years, 20 years hence, they did not anticipate the growth of the cotton industry, the rise of cotton to be the, like the oil of the 19th century, the, the, the commodity that drove the economy, and that slavery would become more and more essential to the economy of the South and of the United States. A number of them, including Thomas Jefferson, for example, really believed that they were living in the end times of slavery. So Jefferson, who was very complicated on the subject, writes, the spirit of the master is abating, the spirit of the slave is rising from the dust. So what they believe, what they didn't believe is kind of a topic for a, another book, but now to the third point in the Constitution on slavery, and that's where my story sort of begins. The founders of the Republic recognized something that I think we tend not to want to acknowledge ourselves, that the so-called United States that they were creating at that time was not really one nation. Yes, it was 13 separate, actually 12, because Rhode Island didn't send a delegate to the convention, but they ended up signing on. 13 d disparate colonies, but in fundamentally, there were two countries. There were the southern colonies in which slavery was the bedrock of the economy and culture, and there were the northern colonies where slavery was clearly en route to extinction already by the end of the 18th century. Not, I hasten to add, necessarily because People in the North were more morally enlightened, and I mean, some were, some weren't, but simply because the nature of the economy, the nature of the climate, the historical circumstances were such that slavery was the key institution in the South and not in the North. So there were two countries, and they were going to make themselves into one country. And that meant there was a border, an unofficial border between the slave states and the free states. And the, the delegates, particularly the southern delegates, recognized from the beginning that they were going to have to agree on what I call a kind of uh, intranational extradition treaty. What will you do if a, an enslaved person in one of the slave states seeks freedom by taking him or herself physically to a free state? goes from a place where slavery is legal by state law to a place where slavery is not legal by state law. And this was clearly a, a, a fundamental problem for the American Commonwealth from the beginning. There's one little incident that I relate in the book where a man named Pierce Butler, one of the South Carolina delegates, is in Philadelphia in, um, I think it's about 18 uh, or 1790s, early 1800s, and Pennsylvania had by that time already passed a law that any slave who was brought by a slave owner into the state of Pennsylvania and was in residence for more than six months was automatically emancipated. So the authorities come knocking on Pierce Butler's door and say, listen, you've got a slave here. We've been, we understand you've been here for six and a half months or seven months or whatever it is. And Butler says, I'm a citizen of South Carolina. The laws of Pennsylvania have nothing to do with me. And in that response, you get the nugget of the political problem that the early American Republic faced. To what extent did the states owe allegiance to the laws of other states? And that was really a test of how coherent the nation was. So into the Constitution, the founders put the notorious, what has come down to be known as the notorious fugitive slave clause, right? Article, always, I don't know if I want to make sure I got my numbers right. Article 4, Section 2, Clause 3. And I won't read it to you, but the, the gist of it is 
no person, and they use the word person again, it's one of the ironies of the Constitution is there. They refer to people who are not being treated as people as people. So that's a, that's a brain scrambling phenomenon. But the, but the Fugitive Slave Clause says no person owing service or labor in one state can escape that obligation by going to another state, but must be returned to the person to whom service or labor is due. Now, if, if you set aside the moral questions, which is always a hard thing to do when talking about this subject, but you think of it just as a kind of political bargain, it's possible to understand why the Fugitive Slave Clause had to be there if they were going to put this country together. Uh, Thomas Hart Benton, senator from Missouri, said later on, if there had been no Fugitive Slave Clause, there would have been no Constitution. Now, nobody can know that. That's one of those kind of counterfactual questions. Uh, but it seems like a, a, like a likelihood that there was no incentive for the southern colonies to sign on if they didn't feel that there was some security being offered to them for their human property, which was, from an economic point of view, an extremely significant part of their, of their being. In fact, one delegate from South Carolina had to go back to Charleston to convince his fellow Carolinians to sign on to the Constitution. As remember, they had the convention, but then they had to go back and had to be ratified said to uh, his fellow Carolinians, we can now recover our slaves from any part of America where they may seek refuge, a right we had not before. And I li again, like is not the right verb, but I'm struck by that statement. We can recover them from where they may seek refuge. This coming from somebody who spends a lot of time talking about how great slavery is for the slaves, right? I mean, slavery is good condition for enslaved people because they're taken care of. You know, they don't have to worry about the food and, and the clothing. It's all provided for them. And then you ask yourself, well, yeah, if it's so great, how come they're seeking refuge? You know, it's like Lincoln later on says something similar. It's always a sin to paraphrase Lincoln, but I do it anyway, one of my many sins. Um, he says, you know, I hear a lot of people talking to me about what, how great slavery is uh, for the enslaved people, but I have yet to meet any person, any white person who has volunteered for it. You know, talk about how great it is, but nobody wants it for themselves. Anyway, um, the point, as you can surmise without my having to say so, is that this delegate, Mr. Pinckney from South Carolina, he spoke too soon. The reality was that the Fugitive Slave Clause was in the Constitution, but there was no way to enforce it. The federal government had virtually no power in the early 19th century. We think of the federal government as this gigantic thing in Washington with a huge military, which we're now using for domestic purposes. I won't go down that road. I'm not here to make a political speech tonight. Um, but the federal government in the early uh, uh, 19th century was a very weak entity. So it was in the Constitution, but it couldn't be enforced. And as you know, in the course of the first half of the 19th century, the United States expanded relentlessly westward. So that border between the slave states and the free states got longer and longer and more and more porous. You know, I mean, these guys were worrying about slaves in Baltimore or in Maryland coming to Pennsylvania 20, 30 years later. They were, had to worry about slaves in Kentucky coming to Ohio and so on and so forth. So in the course of the 19th century, this problem, the fugitive slave problem, if that's the right word, got worse and worse from the point of view of the, of the slave owners. And there were various efforts made to try to deal with it, but uh, it, it got entangled in all kinds of legal intricacies that we can talk about later if you, if you want to. Um, but the other thing to know is that by the 1830s and 1840s, a, s a growing number of fugitives began to talk about their experiences in public. The most famous speaker of the first half of the 19th century, white or black, was probably Frederick Douglass, who spoke with more and more eloquence about his experience in slavery uh, 
and his experience in freedom. This, he wrote his memoir three times, and the second time he called it My Bondage and My Freedom. Not only did they make speeches, but with the help of abolitionist editors, uh, they wrote books. And the books were published and disseminated by abolitionist societies to the South, which became more and more aggravating, as you can imagine, to slave owners who felt that there was this propaganda machine north of that border that was intent on stirring up discontent and sedition and encouraging slaves to run away. Now, in reality, the number of fugitive slaves was never very significant compared to the millions. By 1850, there were more than three million African Americans enslaved in the United States. By the Civil War, it was, all, it was, it was closer to four million. Compared to that number, the few thousand who fled every year was an insignificant number, if you think about the world in numerical terms, which some people do. But the political problem, the human problem, the moral problem was a very large one. And the, I guess the argument I try to make in this book, it's less of an argument and more of a story, is that the, this phenomenon of human beings refusing to be uh, held in bondage without an effort to escape became one of the most, if not the most, aggravating uh, elements in the road to civil war. And I could make that case, but that would be more for like an academic conference, but that's, that's my point of view. Now, in 18, by 1850, the tension between the sections was boiling over. Right. There had been this war against Mexico, which increased the territorial size of the United States by a fantastic amount. 30% added to the United States a territory equivalent to about 30% of our present-day nation. So by 1850, this, this border between North and South was really long and really unpoliceable. So it, it started to feel in 1850 as if political leadership of the South was going to make the decision to leave the Union. We'll never know if they would have done so in 1850. All we can say is they did so in 1861. But in 1850, there was more and more talk about secession. And the Congress, in its wisdom, made another deal, made another compromise, one in the long history of compromises by which white Americans have advanced their interests at the expense of black Americans. I don't think there's really any other way to put it. And this compromise, again, was very intricate. It had to do with some territories. Slavery would be permitted if, if uh, the local voters wanted it. Other territories, it would not be permitted. But at the core of this compromise, and it was something that the southern states demanded, was a new fugitive slave law that was the effort to put teeth into that somewhat toothless clause of the Constitution. And it was a merciless law. It denied to an accused fugitive the basic right of habeas corpus, the, the cardinal principle of Anglo-American jurisprudence that every accused person has the right in open court to contest the legality of his or her contention, uh, de detention. It denied the right to a jury trial. It denied the right to testify on your own behalf. It criminalized the activity of any citizen who came to the aid of an accused fugitive. If you harbored a fugitive in your house, in that sense, if you participated in what has come to be known as the Underground Railroad, you were committing a federal crime according to the law of 1850. Now, this law was designed by the Congress to hold the nation together. Think of it as the linchpin that, that was going to hold the whole thing together. Perhaps, not surprisingly in retrospect, but again, we want to remind ourselves, I think, in talking about, I know you have a lot of people standing up here to talk about the past, who write history books. And whatever they're writing about, seems to me the most important thing for anybody to remember when they think or write about the past is that Nobody knew what was going to happen. We know what happened, right? But we don't, we don't know what's going to happen next week. 
we don't know what's going to happen in two years from now, the election of 2020. We don't know what's going to happen. We can make guess about the environment or any number of other things that are on our minds, but we don't know what's going to happen. And they didn't either. They thought this compromise would hold. In fact, and this is kind of the core of the story I try to tell in this book, it, if designed to hold the country together, it tore it apart. It produced civil disobedience in the streets. It encouraged and accelerated the emergence of what I have referred to in the book as the first Black Lives Matter movement, where black intellectuals and black activists said, you know, en enough, and came, came to the public attention in a way that they had never done before. It created a biracial resistance movement in, in, in the North. It had some very peculiar consequences politically because <clears throat> for a long time the Southerners and the Southern Southerners have always liked the theory of states' rights, right? You know, stay out of my business. I don't want the federal government in my business. That's what George Wallace and others were saying during the era of Jim Crow in the 1950s and 1960s. All of a sudden, Southerners were big fans of federal power. You know, send in the troops. There, you know, you read in the newspapers, the Georgia newspapers, others. Uh, you know, when when uh, uh, the city of Boston sort of, on, in a, to use our vocabulary, proclaimed itself what we would call a sanctuary city. For and you could think of the fugitive slaves as the domestic illegal immigrants of their own time. So the Georgia citizen the uh, newspaper says, send the federal troops to Boston and 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 bombard them from the sea until the whole city is in ruins. So the law that was designed to bring everybody together was actually having, having the opposite effect. Ralph Waldo Emerson, the major intellectual of New England, said it it, the, the fugitive slave law was like a sheet of lightning at midnight. It, what now, and if you think about that metaphor, you want to ask, so what exactly did it illuminate? What did it reveal? The way I think of this and try to talk about in the book is that it revealed something that Northerners had tried not to see. It revealed that everybody in the United States was complicit in the institution of slavery. They kind of knew this in the abstract, right? I mean, if you thought about it, if you were wearing clothes made out of cotton, or if you were putting sugar in your tea or in your candy, uh, you were participating in the slave system. Emerson said elsewhere, no one tasted the blood in the treats. If you thought about the bank down the street that was financing the, the big plantations, or if you were aware that New England was beginning to undergo the Industrial Revolution and the great textile mills in Lowell, Massachusetts and other places were spinning slave-grown cotton into cloth for domestic consumption and for export, Everybody was up to their eyeballs in slavery, but people are, and I think we're like that, I know I'm like that, people are capable of deluding themselves. People don't want to know too much about where their conveniences come from or where the clothes come from or the food that we eat come from. So New Englanders were like that until the fugitive slave law made them sit up and notice that slavery was now in their own neighborhood that an enslaved person who had had the courage to flee from Georgia or Virginia or Maryland or wherever was now literally being pursued down the street by federal deputized uh, authorities and dragged off to the jailhouse and taken without any semblance of due process, because that was part of the law, to a ship on the pier and sent back to the master from whom he had run, who was very likely going to be very angry when he got back and treat him even worse than he had before. So the fugitive slave law forced people in the North, not just, I'm talking about Massachusetts, it happened here also in Pennsylvania, the famous Christiana incident in Lancaster County. It forced people in the North to look more honestly at their own complicity with the institution of slavery. So um, the story that I tell in this book boldly or foolishly enough, continues all the way to the Civil War. Uh, and again, you know, no, no historian can say, well, this was the cause of the Civil War, or this political event was the one that lit the fuse that led to the explosion. 
But I do try to make the case in this book that it was the fugitive slave phenomenon, the courage of these human beings to pull themselves out of bondage and seek freedom and to speak about their experiences and to present themselves face to face with their fellow human beings and say, look at me, do, do, is this really the society that you're prepared to defend through the laws and otherwise? That they had a tremendous impact on the coming of the Civil War. And just to wrap it up uh, in a hasty and compressed manner, and then we can get to questions. The war itself, the fugitive slave problem continues to uh, be at the center of the, of the drama. Uh, as late as, as 1862, 63, the fugitive slave law was still on the books, even while the North and the South were in the midst of a shooting war that cost, before it was over, something like a million lives, which is a mind, another mind boggler, if you think about that, a million people in a nation of 30 million, extrapolate what that would mean today, it would mean something like um, uh, 10, 15, 20 million dead and wounded, not to mention the psychological casualties in a conflict with ourselves. Way, way beyond the scale of any other military conflict that the United States has ever engaged in. But the f so the fugitive slave law was still on the books into the Civil War, um, because there were a lot of people who were hoping that the war would come to an end and things would go back to the way it was, way it was before, in, including perhaps for a while Mr. Lincoln, though that's complicated and we can talk about that. But the reality of the war, the facts on the ground, as they like to say, meant that the war itself created hundreds of thousands of fugitive slaves. Because the deeper into secession territory that the Union Army advanced, the more uh, black people were suddenly separated from their previous status and had to be accommodated or dealt with in one way or another. There is a story that, I mean, it's hard, I hope I'm conveying that this is not exactly light reading, uh, but there are some moments which you might say almost get to the point of humor. And one of them is in May, and I'll maybe end with this, in May of 1861, Benjamin Butler, who's a Vermont-born lawyer who became an officer in the Union Army, he was no abolitionist by any means. He had gone to the Democratic Convention in 1860 and voted multiple times for Jefferson Davis as the presidential candidate. But there he was in command of a Union installation called Fort Monroe in Hampton Roads, Virginia in May 1861. And he's just kind of arrived there and getting organized and figure out what's going on here. And he sees this guy approaching the fort under a flag of truce. The day before, three slaves from a local plantation had shown up at the fort seeking sanctuary. <clears throat> they said, we don't want to be there anymore. We're prepared to come here and you can put us to work and we'll work for you and he had admitted them to the fort. So this guy shows up under a flag of truce and says, uh, I understand three slaves belonging to uh, Colonel Mallory, whom I represent here, have come to your fort and I'd like to have them back. And General Butler was not prepared for this. This is an example of nobody knew what was gonna happen. General Butler sort of thinks about it, says, I, I don't think so. And then this guy under the flag of truce says, are you, you know, are you going to, you mean to say that you're not going to honor the provisions of the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850? And General Butler, and to this I for this I think he deserves some credit, he certainly wanted credit for it, he was very proud of it, just improvises this response and he says, now as far as I know, yesterday, Virginia issued an ordinance of secession which means it's a foreign country and the Fugitive Slave Law has no bearing on a foreign country, so get out of my fort <laughs> and leave, leave me alone. And that was I the beginning of the end of, I mean, there's no beginning to any story, but it was a, a, a great leap forward in the realization that this was not just a war to preserve the Union, this was gonna be a war to destroy slavery. And there are many stages in that transformation which would require another book. Um, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop there. Uh, maybe just to say in closing that you know, this is a history book. It's a book about the past. And yet, I do believe that, uh, unfortunately, alas, uh, 
a lot of what I write about in this book is remains extremely resonant in the present. I think I probably don't need to labor that point, but that um, we haven't yet fully come to terms with the legacy of slavery, with the responsibility for slavery in this country is, uh, I mean, I think we have made progress. I, I think it's a mistake to ignore that, the progress we've made, but it's a, probably an even bigger mistake to overstate it and to fail to recognize that the legacy of this is institution remains with us. So I, I do hope if you choose to read this book that you'll feel that while you're reading a, an important story about the past, you're also gaining some insight into the present. Thank you very much. I'll stop there and be happy to take some questions. First question from the stairs. Uh, good evening. Thank you very much for coming to Aspa. I do want to believe you by chance. And I do want to believe you by chance. Believe and me about. And, about and, and, and in reference to the North actually fought the war because of the fugitive, because, because of the situation that the fugitive were dealing with. And I mean, in today's term, where 50% of the North, especially in Pennsylvania, fo voted for a guy that says white supremacy is uh, white supremacist Alpine people, I just find it hard to understand in the seven, 1700 that people actually did it to fight for the people, for the rights of the black people. I mean, 50s, Levittown, people were demonstrating because one black person wanted to live, a GI Bill wanted to live in an area where white people are living. And that's the North, that's not the South. So I just find it hard to believe you. And I'm sorry, no, no, but no, convince I, I, me before I, I buy the book. Okay, okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, look, it's, 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 it's an important question, and I want to be clear that not to be misunderstood. It's perhaps, no doubt, my fault if I'm misunderstood. I make no claim in this book that the northern white people were somehow free of the racist impulses and, pre and, and premises and prejudices of southern white people. Uh, by no means. I mean, you know, there was a range of opinion. There were some, I think, who were morally incensed by the institution of slavery and, and, and who felt that the war was a chance for America to get it right in that regard. But you are perfectly right, and one of the most vivid evidences is that you're right is that in the memoirs and testimonies of the fugitives, they often talk about how hard it was for them to find true freedom in the North. Uh, by the way, to be accurate about history, and to be accurate about history means to say things that we might not want to say. Fugitive slaves from the South often found not such a warm welcome among free blacks in the North who regarded them as bringing trouble to the doorstep. I mean, that varied too. There were some free black communities that embraced fugitives and gave them sanctuary. There were others that wanted to have nothing to do with them because you know, they were going to rock the boat and disturb the, disturb the peace. But to go back to your original question, what, what I really meant to say is that it was from the Southern point of view that the fugitive slave problem was a provocation for secession. If you read the ordinance of secession from South Carolina or from Georgia, they all put high in their list of grievances. The Northern states did not meet their constitutional obligation and refused to return our slaves to us. So that's why we're out of here, because we can't trust them as you know, partners in this bargain. So my point is that the fugitive slave problem drove the South to secession more than it drove the North to indignation, although it did the latter to a larger extent than we might want to believe, but I, I think it did, it did both. But that's the real, the real answer to your question. The, the, the provocation was to the South. One more question on the stairs. Thank you for coming to Harrisburg. Um, I guess the taking down of the monuments, you know, like when we happened maybe while you were working on this book, did, did that give you a more intense feeling about that or interest in that? Well, you're quite right. I mean, a lot of things happen while, I, you know, that's, uh, 
One of the things about writing about the past is that you're always affected by what's happening in the present in ways that you can't anticipate. I mean, the whole furor over illegal immigration, I mean, it's been there for a while, but it really came to a boil while I was writing this book. And I made the decision not to, there are not a lot of sentences in this book that talk about the present. There's just once in a while I try to gesture toward, toward the present. Now, the taking down of the monuments is an enormously complex uh, subject. I mean, it's, it's an outrage. It should be an outrage to all Americans. It's certainly an outrage that has been felt for a very long time by all African Americans that this country is so filled with monuments to secessionists and slave owners and traitors. Um, at the same time, I, I haven't really sorted out for myself what I think about the right response to. I mean, I, I'm encouraged by the fact that we are getting, as it were, c contrary monuments, like the, uh, the monument to the lynchings that has gone up in Alabama um, uh, under the inspired leadership of Brian Stevenson so that, so that Americans will be compelled to remember the thousands of nameless African Americans who were murdered uh, in, the, in the 20th century. Um, the, we finally have a National Museum of African American History in, in Washington. So I, I think that's an encouraging sign that, that, that there's, a, there's a contested story. It's not all about Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee anymore. Whether, you know, pulling down monuments can be a slippery slope because uh, if you start morally inspecting everybody from the past and you say if they don't pass the moral test, you're going to remove their name from the honor roll, there's not going to be a lot left. And, and we also, I think, want to ask ourselves the question, how will future generations look at us? I agree. I think I think those statues should be moved somewhere else. They could be put in a museum or something like that. I but I agree. But I'm just saying it's you know pulling them down and throwing a tarp over them and thinking okay now we've solved the problem is a little is a little too easy. Yeah. Any other questions? Yep. Uh, middle row here. Hi. Uh, some time back, I read a book called The South Versus the South um, by an author, last name was Freeling, I yes, believe. Yes, William, William Freeling, right. Um, and it, this is perhaps a little bit past um, the time frame that you're talking about, but it portrays um, the South as being far from monolithic, in right. fact, quite divided. Correct. Um, the, there was the border South, the, right. uh, the low country South, and right. the cotton South. And uh, I was just curious if you would sort of agree that, um, or, or perhaps my question is, that um, during the war it reached a point where I believe the South had some kind of conscription, but if you owned 20 slaves, you were, so I, I guess I struggle sometimes to think what the situation actually was, if it was the Southern plutocracy that was really uh, willing to sacrifice lives to maintain the institution of slavery, and a lot of the guys who were fighting, you know, there was that somebody who said it was a rich man's war, but a poor man's fight. Um, That's often the case. Yeah. What? So I guess would would the you know normal I, I don't know like the the sort of dirt farmer southerner who didn't own any slaves. What, what's the evidence that would indicate that that they were really um, willing to fight for the preservation of slur slavery versus some kind of I don't know, jingoistic Confederate yeah. idea of, yeah. of well, states' rights. Well, it's a, it's a deep question to which I certainly can't give an adequate answer. Uh, it's, it's one of the major questions of American history is why did the large majority of Southern whites who did not own slaves feel so committed to the cause of the Confederacy? And you get a whole range of answers to it. I mean, there's, a, there's a, an essay by Oliver Wendell Holmes writes in 1862, he goes searching for his 
son, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., the future Supreme Court Justice who was wounded um, in battle. And on his, on his way down to Maryland to look for his son, he encounters a group of captured Confederates. And he, in effect, interviews them as to why they're fighting. And the, the best they could come up with, according to him, and he's not necessarily the best uh, witness, was for our homes, for our homes. So, you know, what are the motivations? To f I mean, it, you could ask the same question about the North. I mean, and it, you know, when I was talking about these guys made a deal in 1850 because they thought the South might secede. One reason some people signed on to that deal, even if they detested slavery, was they thought that if the South seceded in 1850, the will to fight in the North was not there. And they would have just walked away and they could have created a whole slave-based empire that expanded into the Caribbean and into, into uh, Mexico and into Cuba. This is, it's all guesswork, right? So, I mean, when, when those seven states seceded uh, before Lincoln's inauguration, and four more states seceded after he called up 75,000 volunteers in response to Fort Sumter. Nobody knew whether the, whether the North, whether Northern whites would step up and fight. It was a, it was a huge gamble. And, you know, I think, I think Lincoln expected that the firing on Fort Sumter would generate indignation in the North, and, and, and he turned out to be right about that. But you can bet that there were all kinds of advisors around him telling him, you know, let them go. And what, I mean, you know, I say to my students sometimes, I, I'm in the confusion business because I'm a little bit allergic to any historical narrative that's just very clear and simple. So for example, one thing I learned when I was working on this book is that quite a number of committed abolitionists didn't think that the North should go to war. So you got Wendell Phillips, who speaks very eloquently about the horrors of slavery. And when he gets the news by telegram that South Carolina has fired on Fort Sumter, he's giving a speech in, uh, I think, Nantucket or New Bedford somewhere. And he says, listen, these people have the same right to, 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 to govern themselves as we did in 1776. Mr. Lincoln doesn't have the right to any soldier in Fort Sumter. This is an abolitionist speaking. Let them go. So it's a complicated story. I mean, you know, people are critical of Lincoln because he was kind of a foot dragger on emancipation. He took a long time before he got to that position. He, he, you talked about the South versus the South. He was determined to keep those border states, slave-owning border states, Kentucky, Delaware, Maryland, Missouri, in the Union because he believed that without them it would be really hard to win that war. Um, so, uh, on the one hand, he's a, he's a foot dragger. On the other hand, if he hadn't prosecuted the war and kept those four states in, who knows what would have happened. One of the startling uh, ironies that I've learned from a history book by a good, good historian at University of Virginia, it seems quite likely that if the war had gone quicker and better for the North, if the South had been defeated quickly, as a lot of people expected it would be, slavery would not have been destroyed. It would have been over, and then they would have you know, brought him back to the table and said, okay, you, know, you can do what you like, just don't try pulling out of the Union again. So the fact that the war dragged on, which nobody anticipated. Remember what Lincoln says in his second inaugural, that no one expected the, the duration of the war no one expected the astounding result of the war, that the cause of the war, and Lincoln was very clear that the cause of the war was slavery. The cause of the war has vanished before the end of the war itself. Now that's not quite accurate because there was still, but the point was slavery was destroyed by the war. Nobody knew that that was gonna happen. So I rambled around after your question, but uh, to go back to the, you know, why men, fight and why they refuse to fight is not a question I can plumb successfully. There's a question in the second row, sorry. Yeah, sorry. So the second great awakening 
occurred during the period that you're addressing. Yes. And there, there are scholars who say that it was the religious zeal that drove this and derailed the uh, instinct toward compromise. Do you have any opinions on that? Well, uh, I think there's no doubt. I mean, you know, the anti-slavery movement was a complex phenomenon. It had many elements. Again, to be faithful to history, we have to acknowledge some ugly facts, and this goes to the question that you asked at the beginning. There were a lot of Northern whites who were opposed to slavery, not because they were particularly concerned about the welfare of black people, but because they didn't want black people in their neighborhood, right? So you could join the Republican, the platform of the Republican Party was no slavery in the federal territories. Now some people signed onto that platform, the, as were alumni of the Second Great Awakening, people with real religious fervor who believed in the equality of man. Some people signed onto that platform because they hated the very idea of slavery. But other people signed onto it because they wanted to take their family to uh, the Northwest and didn't want to have to deal with black people. Well, right. I mean, ev Lincoln even continued to talk about colonization. But there again, this is one of those things where he also knew, and you can see in his writings, that this is never going to happen. You know, He says, they're not, all, they're not enough ships in the whole world to take even a fraction of the black people in America back to Africa. So there's this, I mean, my own feeling is that, I mean, Lincoln was a lot of things. He was a master politician. And in order to in order to win that war, he had to assemble a coalition of people like, you know, Garrison and others who had a moral uh, uh, fervor against slavery, and also people who had no use for black people and liked the idea of shipping them away. He had to have them all on his side, otherwise that war was not winnable. So when he says stuff like that, you know, there's a whole industry, as you know, there's probably next to Shakespeare, there are more books about Lincoln than anybody in history. Figuring out what he's saying as a political move and what he's saying because he really believes it is a, is a tough business. I, I, have, I have opinions about that, but that's another, that's another night, right? We are running uh, out of time here, but we have time for just one more question in the front row. Okay. I, I guess I want to bounce this off of Prague versus Pennsylvania, Scott. And uh, the question is, if a slave was manumissioned and he found his way into territories where it was clearly uh, slavery was illegal, could he be returned to whom if he was manumissioned? Well, wh one of the big concerns of the uh, anti-slavery movement generally and resistance to the fugitive slave clause initially and then the fugitive slave law was that it could ensnare free black people. Right, that that uh, I mean, kidnapping was a significant phenomenon. I don't think we have good statistics about this. I'm not as well informed about this as I should be. I don't think we have a historian who's been able to nail down how many free black people were actually ripped off the street or off the farm and dragged back into slavery on the pretext that they had once belonged to somebody. But the personal liberty laws of the of the northern states, of which Pennsylvania passed the most stringent one in the in the as late as early as the 1820s, were designed to protect free black people from being s kidnapped into into slavery. So legally, the answer is th there was no there were no grounds for taking such a person into slavery. But as a practical matter, I mean, this was a pretty chaotic country in the early 19th century. And all kinds of stuff was going on, and you had to rely on local communities to to defend to defend the local citizenry. Right? It was. I mean, yeah. it was. Uh, uh, what can I say? If if any inference is clear from this book, it would be. I think it was not easy to be black in 19th century America, which is not to say that it was easy in the 20th century, but this book is about the 19th century. And that's, that nobody could read this book and, you know, uh, come to the conclusion that uh, black people have exaggerated the uh, historical circumstances they had to endure in the United States. That's one thing on which I'm 
pretty confident. Oh, yeah, well, sure. There was the, the gentleman said there was deception within the abolitionist movement, too. Absolutely, I mean, you know, people are complicated, and I, I, don't, I don't have any saints in this book, and uh, I got some sinners, but um, even there, I try to understand the world from their point of view. Listen, thank you all very much for coming out. Let's give them a round of applause. And, um, <laughs> thank you.